hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Each evening, as dusk begins to descend, bats emerge in massive columns from caves all around the world and circle like winged dancers up into the sky. It's hard to believe that in almost 10 years of Nocturne, this is the first episode devoted to bats. I vaguely thought about it for years, but it wasn't until I came across a book published in 2015 that the vague thought became complete and utter fascination. I don't even remember how I came across the memoir, The Secret Lives of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Mammals. But it sat on my shelf for a couple of years before I did more than look at the incredible pictures. Finally, a few months ago, I sat in a chair in my living room, immersed and engaged, laughing, crying, stomach in knots, and feeling like, no, realizing that, I was reading an intense and important drama that I couldn't put down. Its author is the conservationist, writer, and wildlife photographer Merlin Tuttle, a mild-mannered man in his 80s who's been hailed as having done more for bat conservation than anyone in history. I've come to think of him as a cross between Mr. Rogers and Indiana Jones in the world of bats. His passion and singular focus have landed him in some interesting situations. We're in Africa looking for frog-eating bats to study, and I see a small herd of elephants. One of the herd had already started his charge. The elephant smashed into the back of the Land Rover, and we escaped. We managed to drive faster than they could run. I was inadvertently left out one night where there's a man-eating tiger. My first trip to photograph bats in Africa there was a bug that bit, and these things were biting me under the water. I would have to look every so often to make sure there wasn't a crocodile in the area. And about that time, I heard lions, whole pride of them, practically right over my head. When I went to Jamaica to photograph bats, they took me out to the bat cave. They were mining for guano for fertilizer. It was a 75-foot freefall drop from the entrance to get in. And they had me and my camera case get into the guano bag. And they lowered me gradually down in there. And fortunately, the rope didn't break or anything, but it was quite an experience being lowered in a guano bag by a bunch of guys that, in fact, before they lowered me, all took a hit of ganja to make them brave about doing it. (laughs) I'm Merlin Tuttle, and I've been studying bats for 65 years. I've probably seen more bats in more places than any other living human. I've photographed them, studied them, observed them in more than 40 countries worldwide, often surrounded by millions of bats in caves. I've definitely had enough experience with bats to know what they're like and to know that they don't go around attacking people. This is really important. Bats do not go around attacking people. And though it may seem a bit repetitive, you're going to hear that a couple more times. It all began when Merlin was 17 years old. A friend from high school 
told me about a bat cave not far from our home. I got my father to take me to the cave. We uh, knew nothing about caving or, or bats really. We logically followed a trail of bat droppings leading into where the bats were roosting. And when we finally got in a ways, we came to a narrow passage that obviously the bats had gone through. I started through that passage to find the bats. And when my headlight came out the other side, I panicked the bats who thought somebody was probably coming to kill them. And they all tried hundreds of them, uh, at least hundreds of them tried to escape all at once. And I was literally covered in bats because I was trying to come in the same hole, blocking the hole that they were trying to use to escape. And I had bats in my shirt all over me. I just had to lay still until they calmed down and uh, moved away. But not a single one ever bit me or scratched me or in any way harmed me. In fact, in my whole life of studying bats, I've yet to ever be attacked by one. I've never contracted a disease of any kind from a bat, despite all the fear people have. Bats only bite in self-defense if they're handled. It's exceedingly rare to be attacked by bats. Finding that cave full of bats was cool, but it was something even cooler that got Merlin hooked on studying them. Well, first of all, I was just curious about what kind they were. I went home and looked them up in a field guide and figured out that they were gray bats. But uh, the books all in those days said that they didn't migrate. They lived in the same cave year round. So not too long later, I wanted my mother to see the bats as they emerged from the cave in the evening. If you've never seen a colony of bats emerge from a cave in the evening, it can be quite a spectacle. They form a kind of swirling vortex that's sometimes referred to as a bat nido. That's what Merlin wanted his mother to see and what he fully expected to happen. I brought her and my father back to see the emergence and there was no emergence. The bats simply weren't there. But the book said they lived in one cave year round. So that immediately made me very curious. I repeatedly went back and checked and found that they were only present in the spring and fall. Merlin got his mother to drive him from Knoxville, Tennessee, where they lived, to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. He wanted to talk to the people who had written the books he was reading about bats, the ones who said that bats didn't migrate. And I took my field notes where I'd record the dates the bats were present and absent, and even a voucher specimen to prove I knew what kind I was talking about, and uh, explained to them that my observations didn't mesh with their uh, reporting in their books. The people at the Smithsonian were so impressed to see this high school student doing scientific field work on his own that they gave him several thousand bat bands, which are like tiny little anklets that researchers affix to the edge of a bat's wing so they can identify them at a later date and track their movement and health and said, why don't you go home and next time the bats come through, ban some and see if you can figure out where they go. Just a couple of months later, Merlin's dad had a business trip planned around 100 miles north of where they lived. He invited Merlin to come along and look for bats. And we just went out to an old country store and found some good old boys sitting around a pot-bellied stove having some coffee and asked them if they knew about any bat caves. 
and they told us about one where the bats hung down in huge numbers looking like bees hanging in a cluster in a swarm. And so we went and found the place, and it was a huge hibernating population, more than 100,000 of them. It was a very big discovery at the time. In a huge stroke of luck, Merlin also discovered that the bats in this cave were the very same ones that he'd come across near his home. And when I started reading the band numbers of the bats that I had found there, I couldn't believe they could be mine. They had to be somebody else's, but I was writing the numbers down very carefully. And I didn't know until I got home that they were actually my band numbers. So my bats had not only migrated, but they'd gone north instead of south in the fall. And uh, that was pretty exciting. Merlin Tuttle, at 17 years old, had made a huge discovery about bats. That contrary to the scientific consensus at the time, bats didn't stick to one location throughout their lives, but rather migrated between different caves throughout the year. It led me then to continue my interest through graduate school. I ended up banding more than 40,000 bats and following them over thousands of square miles from Virginia and Kentucky to Florida and Georgia and west almost Oklahoma. They turned out to be long-distance migrators. And uh, so when you're just a kid and you make a discovery like that, it tends to keep your attention for a while. That first discovery, as exciting as it was, was just the tip of the iceberg. At first, we didn't find the main mother load of bats in the cave. We just found, I think it was 10 or 11,000, which was 10 or 11,000 more than I'd ever seen at one time before. So we went home, looked up the band numbers, found out they were mine, got all excited. And the next weekend or so, we took my mother and went back to show her. And we went back about 100 feet into the cave, into a complex area, and uh, I noticed bats flying in and out of a small tunnel and decided maybe that would lead to where they were hiding because I, I knew that there had to be a lot more bats in the cave because the 11,000 that we'd seen the week before were no longer in the same place. Remember, Merlin was a very curious, energetic 17-year-old boy, and he had just found a potential access point to the mother load of bats. His bats. His feet led the way. So I crawled down this little tunnel, and at first it wasn't too bad. I could go on my knees and elbows, and then it got narrower and narrower, and finally got so narrow that my arms were trapped in front of me. I couldn't even move them back if I wanted to, and I'm squeezing my way through. Finally, it got to down to the place where I could barely breathe and move, and it was really scary because there was no way I could back up from there. And so the only option was to continue going forward. I did, and luckily was able to come out of a small hole at the other end back into the main room of the cave where we entered. But my parents had no idea what had happened. They were still waiting for me to reappear from the hole that I had crawled down. It wasn't a short wait, because Merlin was on the verge of bat heaven. I looked up and saw bats seeming to just magically disappear into the wall of the cave about 60 feet over my head. 
So I realized there had to be a passage up there, an opening that the bats were going in and out of. I found a crevice in the wall, which was just wide enough and rough enough that I was able to shinny up it, climbed up about 50, 60 feet to where I could get in and go horizontally. I could put my back on one side and feet on the other to keep from falling down. And so I'm getting more and more excited because I'd see more bats flying by. And by this time I was at least 60 or 70 feet above the floor. You know, I was scared to death, but I wasn't about to stop easily. At one point, Merlin found himself with his body hanging high above the cave floor, using only his hands to cross horizontally to get to the opening where he could see bats flying around. Fierce curiosity overshadowed Merlin's own survival instinct for a moment. When I got to the other side, I read the big stride relief, now it's going to be okay because there was a floor. And I started to stand on the floor, and it turned out there wasn't a floor. Decades, maybe hundreds or thousands of years before, rocks had fallen and wedged in this canyon passage at that level, and then, like snow in the winter, the droppings had gradually accumulated and covered over the rocks, so you couldn't tell that it wasn't a solid floor. Just as my feet touched down on what I thought was the floor, it caved away, and let me tell you, that was scary. I was left hanging by a hand on each side, my body just hanging out in thin air as perhaps as much as a ton of rock thundered down at least 60 feet below me and uh, left me hanging. I finally managed to kick around with my feet and get my feet on walls and continue. At that point, I wasn't overly anxious to go back. It was pretty scary thinking about going back anyway, but uh, the bats were ahead of me. So uh, I went a little further and found a hole beneath me that was like a manhole cover hole in a street. And um, I put my head down and looked in there, and to my total amazement, there was an estimated 100,000 hibernating bats. And, you know, when you're a kid who's just been really excited about finding your first 11,000 and then you find 100,000, that was really exciting. I forgot all about my parents and the fact that I was using a carbide light that would eventually run out of water and carbide. And I dropped down into the room and I could see banded bats, lots of them. And so I started grabbing the banded bats and placing them in a cloth bag till I could read their band numbers. And uh, then I went off to a side passage where I wouldn't disturb the rest of them too much and sat on a rock and started reading the numbers and writing down the numbers in a little notebook I'd had in my shirt pocket. And uh, I didn't realize how much time was passing because I was really excited. Pretty soon, my light sputters and goes out. Now, if you want a really, really scary feeling, just be in a really complex place like this in the cave where nobody has a clue how you got there or where you went. You just disappeared seemingly into thin air and all of a sudden your light goes out. Well, I tried a few times to restart and then realized that it was probably hopeless. And I actually put my notebook 
up on a ledge to one side hoping someday when somebody found my skeleton they'd find the notes and prepared for the end. And then it was really cold. These hibernating caves, the reason the bats come from all directions to get to them is that they're very stably cold and the bats can lower their metabolism to last several months of wintertime without eating. So this cave was probably about 42 degrees where I was and there was a breeze going through. And so pretty soon I'm just about hypothermic and I'm thinking, oh, I'd, I'd rather die falling down 70 feet in a hole than freezing to death. But then I had an idea. I knew my light ran out of water before carbide. So I had plenty of time. I sat there and I spit and I spit and I spit into my top water container and eventually i finally got just a tiny blue nub of flame to come out maybe two millimeters and it made just enough light that i could see maybe a couple feet in front of me and so i found my way back to the hole in the ceiling managed to somehow climb out of that merlin climbed back down the way he'd come his light sputtering and threatening to go out all along the way Finally, he could hear his father's voice calling in the distance, leading him to a place too narrow to go through, but wide enough that his father could hand him more water and carbide for his light. Then I had to go figure out how I got where I was and get out. Uh, my parents were anything but happy with me, but uh, so happy that I was still alive that they kind of forgave me on the spot. But that was my first real experience studying bats in caves, and uh, I certainly learned a very important lesson. Don't go in a cave with just one source of light. Merlin survived that first cave excursion through courage and an incredible amount of good luck. And it was lucky for more than just him and his parents. Because since then, that dogged determination and insatiable curiosity has led Merlin to continue to make important contributions to the body of knowledge about these amazing creatures. And bats are amazing. They're the only mammals that can fly. They can eat up to 1,200 mosquitoes in an hour, and echolocation allows them to hunt in complete darkness. Bats can live more than 30 years and fly at speeds of up to 100 miles an hour. But there is still much that is unknown about bats. The thing that really caught my attention about bats wasn't just that a kid could make a big discovery that they were very poorly understood, but also the fact that even today, probably 90% of the world's bat species are so poorly studied that we don't have any idea really of their value or needs. There's a huge amount of discovery remain to be made, and it turned out that almost around every corner you could make a new discovery if you're studying bats. And that hasn't changed that much even today. Since I first started studying bats, we then knew of 850 species. Now it's more than 1,400 species. So I have discovered as many as four new species and a new genus of bat on a single trip. It's a wide open field for discovery. And much of what we discover about bats is how they're incredibly sophisticated and important. One of my most fascinating discoveries when I was just a kid, I'd learned falconry and trained hawks for falconry and loved to go out and hunt with my Harris's hawk. But later in life, I found that I could actually train bats like falconers train falcons. 
I was able to train bats so that I could test their intelligence. And each time I made a test, I found that they were far more intelligent than I could have ever dreamed. They are very quick learners. I have trained bats, caught straight out of the wild, trained them to come to my hand on call in 30 minutes, a wild caught bat. Not only that, but those same bats can be marked and released back into the wild. And if they're caught again years later, they still remember to come on call like they were originally trained to do. And although I've been studying bats all these decades, I'm still making major discoveries that amaze me. Some of those discoveries have to do with the incredible value that bat behavior has for human well-being. Fruit bats can eat anywhere from double to triple their body weight in a single night, and then release the seeds in their poop while they're flying. We just took a trip to Zambia with our members a few months ago to see a really incredible spectacle, the migration of 10 million straw-colored fruit bats. And in their annual migrations, these bats are spreading literally millions of tons of seeds. This behavior is hugely important for reseeding forests. We hear a lot about the importance of losing tropical forests and how important it is to replenish them. I can't think of a thing we could do to restore tropical forests more efficiently than conserving bats. And then there are all the pests bats eat, saving important food crops. Well, just right here in Texas, research on free-tailed bats that feed on migratory moth pests, they migrate north out of Mexico at high altitudes. The bats fly thousands of feet up into the sky. They can travel with tailwinds up to 100 miles per hour to get to distant locations. They find and intercept these migratory moths and each moth is carrying up to a thousand or more eggs. So if a bat eats even 10 or 20 migratory moths, it's preventing thousands of caterpillars from attacking crops. So in just one night, one bat can save a farmer from needing to spray multiple acres with pesticides at a cost of about $75 an acre. If people had any idea at all what these bats do, they would be lined up demanding their protection. If being the operative word here, most people are entirely in the dark about how amazing and important bats truly are. It's our ignorance that gets us in trouble. Unfortunately, the only time we see one of these bats or the only time most people see one of these bats is when it's sick and somebody says, oh my God, it's rabid. And then you hear grossly exaggerated stories about how dangerous bats are when in fact, in a whole lifetime, I've yet to be attacked or contracted disease. That ignorance has led to some pretty horrendous treatment of bats all around the world. When I first began my research on bats, people were terrified of bats in those days and hated them. And how I got started in conservation was in some of my early studies, my bat colonies that I was conducting research on were literally burned when people poured kerosene in their caves and lit it on fire. People were burning colonies, sometimes tens of thousands of bats at a time, killing them. And I, I became more and more horrified as I learned the value of bats learned how simple it was to get along with them without needing to be afraid of them at all, and then saw what this fear was doing to harm 
not only the bats, but whole ecosystems of life in, in our own future. And that's how I got started in conservation. In fact, one of my favorite old stories was of a man who owned a bat cave, and I asked him permission to study his bats. He thought scientists killed bats when they studied them. So he gave me permission and said, and kill all you can while you're there. And instead of arguing with him about that bats were beneficial and shouldn't be killed, I just thanked him and went in the cave. I noticed he was growing uh, potatoes in a field not far from the cave. And as I went into the cave, I saw that the floor was littered with potato beetle wings that the bats had dropped when they ate the potato beetles. I gathered up a handful of them, pretended ignorance, and when I came back out, said, you know, I'm always interested in what these bats are eating. Can you tell me what these are? And he looked, his eyes got big. Oh my God, those blankety blank blank SOBs, they're eating potato bugs. And I never told him one thing about the importance of protecting bats. I never told him that they were endangered and needed help. I just informed him about the bats. The next time I came back, I swear if somebody had come saying they wanted to collect some bats, they'd have been off his property at the end of his shotgun. And time and time again, I have found that people, once they understood that they didn't need to fear the bats and that the bats were invaluable helpers, they love them. Merlin has tons of stories about the amazing speed with which he was able to change people's minds and hearts about bats. Most of them have to do with just connecting with the individuals involved, rather than lecturing to or vilifying them. Most people will respond quite well if you listen patiently to their reasons. You know, if somebody told me they burned their cave, I'd first question, well, why would you do that? And they would look at me like, well, you, you of all people, you're a bat researcher. You should know why I did it. And uh, just ask some questions. And pretty soon it starts to dawn on them that this wasn't a very smart thing to do. And then be interested in helping them. And uh, most people, if you listen to them and then offer to help them, they're quite willing to work cooperative to do things that make the world a better, safer place to live. The things that I find most important are diffusing these misunderstandings that people have because bats are active only at night, difficult to see, and easily misunderstood. I mean, look at what's happened here in Austin. When I first came to Austin, hundreds of thousands of bats were moving into newly created crevices in the Congress Avenue Bridge in the middle of town. People had been warned by health department officials that the bats were mostly rabid and would attack. They were signed petitions, panicked, demanding that the bats be eradicated. The highway department had actually, and some of the other bridges, already begun burning them with blowtorches. I took a look around and realized that this was a golden opportunity and presented it that way. The key to my success was that I always took a live bat with me when I went out to make a difference on television or talking to people. And I would point out, you know, this isn't something that you should do. If you find a bat that you can catch, it's probably sick. Don't try to handle it. But I want you to see how naturally gentle bats are and how unlikely they are to ever be aggressive and try to attack you. And then I would talk about how beneficial the bats were. Today, 
those same baths that had everybody panicked are bringing in millions of tourist dollars a summer. They're educating people globally who come from all over the world to enjoy the baths. And at the same time, at no cost to us, they're controlling literally tons of insect pests. You can hardly find a better deal. And that seals my case when it comes to fear of bats. Understand them and you'll get over your fear. In fact, you'll probably love them. That has definitely been the case in Austin, Texas. I mean, when the bats come out from the Congress Avenue Bridge, you can actually see the columns sometimes for more than a mile. And I have seen nights when you can see up to five columns at once. It's really spectacular. People that live in high-rise apartments, sometimes on the 25th, even the 30th floor, look out on their patios and watch the bats going right by at eye level. It's an incredible experience I've heard. I don't know how many people comment after a good night of bat watching on the bridge that this was an absolutely unforgettable, once-in-a-lifetime experience. The effects of Merlin's conservation work have been beyond successful. Years ago, the Samoan flying fox was about to become extinct because of overhunting, commercial overhunting, to be shipped off to Guam for people to eat. And a colleague of mine who is very concerned, a botanist who is concerned about all the dependent plants that were going to be potentially lost, He convinced me to come out there with a couple of donors who funded the trip. We all went out and we were going to meet with Governor Lutali to see if we could convince him to end the commercial hunting that was threatening the bats. We got there after an overnight flight. Those who went with me were very tired. They went to get a nap. While they were napping, I went out and found the commercial hunters and made friends with them. I'm not opposed to hunting. I think hunting is actually a necessary part of keeping nature in balance these days when we have no natural predators left of deer and things like that. So I just talked to them as a fellow hunter and said, aren't you concerned? Because that night they only were able to shoot two or three bats and they were telling me how there used to be huge numbers. And, you know, and I asked them, well, what do you think caused the disappearance of all these bats? Well, we shot too many. Well, aren't you concerned about having some around for your children, your grandchildren to hunt? And they said, well, you know, out here people don't cooperate that much. I told them about hunters passing game laws in the U.S. to protect their favorite game species. And when I came back that night, my colleague and people with me were very upset that I had been consorting with the enemy. I mean, really upset with me. I'd have probably been fired if I could have been. But I kept going out with these hunters, went out with them on their hunts three nights in a row. And by the end of the three nights, they had been delighted to hear that I was going to meet with Governor Lutali and that I might be willing to represent their interests in convincing the governor to pass game laws to protect flying foxes. They went so far as to actually outlaw commercial hunting and then when a hurricane, uh, typhoon, I guess you call it out there, passed and did a lot of damage, they were worried about the survival of the bats. And it was the hunters who decided to declare a moratorium on all flying fox hunting. And 27 years later, when I asked about that moratorium, I was told that it was still in effect. 
And so those hunters that were originally commercial hunters ended up playing an important role in helping us gain a national park that now protects everything from coral reefs to cloud forest mountaintops. There's a lot of power in making friends and being helpful instead of telling people what they can't do. Even with all the positive success that Merlin and other bat conservationists have had, the bats are by no means out of the woods. It's really bad right now. As a generality, bats are officially declared to be the most endangered mammals of America. We've lost huge numbers. They've been here since the age of dinosaurs. Prior to the arrival of modern humans, bats probably filled our skies on a par with passenger pigeons by day. Whole ecosystems of life on Earth have evolved to depend on bats for pollination, for seed dispersal. There was a study recently that showed that when you excluded bats from a forest area, young shagbark hickory trees seedlings suffered 400% more damage from insects than if you had bats present. Bats are a key component of healthy ecosystems worldwide. And yet, simply because we don't understand them and we easily fear what we don't understand, we persecute them and ignore their plight, and that's to our own very serious detriment. One of the good things that I like to point out is, in my experience, when we go about it in a friendly, proper manner, educating people positively about how to better their future by helping bats, we can still make a huge difference. Despite the grim outlook for bats worldwide, Merlin focuses on what is possible. Actually, the gray bat, when I started studying it, was in such rapid decline that leading experts on bats had predicted that it would probably soon become extinct. And through simple education, explain reality to people, cavers and others who are inadvertently causing the decline by disturbing their roosts at the wrong times. You know, the landowners had been burning their caves because the health department had told them the bats were dangerous. I got these same people to turn around and start helping protect the bats. And it wasn't just me alone. It always takes more than just one person. Thousands of people have supported my work through time. But today we have millions more gray bats than when their extinction was predicted. It was done by people who had faith in my work and helped support what I did and done by the fact that I used my winning friends, not battles approach to conservation. And I found that to be extremely successful. If you look for the good, the people that want to do right, befriend them, you can start building a beachhead of progress for the future. And the future can be much brighter when we do it that way. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me 
and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Find out more about Nocturne at nocturnepodcast.org. I'll post links for Merlin Tuttle's work in the show notes for this episode. The website, merlintuttle.org, is a great place to find everything you need to know about bats, bat conservation, and how you can get involved. His memoir, The Secret Lives of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Mammals, has many, many more incredible stories, as well as information about bats, the peril they're in, and what can be done. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the show on PayPal and Patreon. I've decided to stop doing ads on Nocturne completely, so you literally keep the show going. If you don't already support us, please consider doing so now. Go to nocturnepodcast.org support to find out how. Extra special thanks to DM Snow for supporting us on Patreon at the Happy Possum level, which is our highest tier. You're awesome. Nocturne is a proud member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, a group of smart, well-crafted, independent podcasts. Check out all the shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Till next time, thanks for listening, and be well.